This podcast contains themes of family violence, which may be triggering. If you're listening in Tasmania where this podcast is made and you need support now, you can contact the free Family Violence Counselling and Support Service on 1800 608 122. Or you can call the 24-hour National Support Service on 1800 RESPECT. If you're in an emergency, please contact triple zero. This podcast also contains legal information. It is not intended to be legal advice. You will find a list of legal services that you can contact for individual advice in the show notes. So I think it ended up being about four or five weeks all up where we were separated um, and we were ordered to bring the children to court on a particular day and so we both had to bring the children to the court not knowing who was going to go home with who. Can you imagine? Maybe you can. Yep, this is the episode that we talk about parenting, parenting throughout legal proceedings and importantly beyond them. And it's worth pointing out that everything people wanted to tell us about their experience couldn't be included in this podcast. What you will learn is what the law is trying to work out in Parenting Matters and what you can expect about the process. Hi, my name is Penny Terry and this is the fifth episode of Rule of Thumb. It's a podcast where we learn about the law through the experience of women, the lawyers who represent them and the other support services who are often involved in the process. And if there is any area of the legal process where we rightly or wrongly think it's skewed towards women, it's parenting matters. And that's something that Hannah, one of the lawyers at the Women's Legal Service, hears a lot. So I guess there does seem to be an opinion in society that the courts are biased towards the mother or that it's automatically 50-50. So one of the concepts in parenting is what's called parental responsibility. So there's a presumption under the Family Law Act that parents have uh, equal shared parental responsibility unless that presumption is rebutted. And so it can be rebutted in the case of if there's family violence. So what um, parental responsibility means is that both parents have the right to make decisions regarding major long-term issues for a child. So things like medical treatment, education, religious and cultural upbringing, all of those really you know, big, important things in the life of a child. But not whether they go on a school excursion today or not? Um, So it can include that. Parental responsibility does also include those day-to-day decisions, but that's typically up to the parent with whom the child is with at the time to make those decisions. So when we talk about um, parental responsibility and equal parental responsibility, um, what we have seen is that some people think equal parental responsibility also means equal custody. Although custody is an outdated term, we don't use that in the family law system anymore. It lives with. So who the child lives with is how it's referred to now. Why is that? Why that change? Um, I guess custody doesn't have that great connotation around it. It connotes ownership um, and that's really not appropriate for children. That explanation that you just gave then about parental responsibility, 
How often do you have that on a day-to-day basis with clients, particularly new clients, I guess? Yeah, I'd say that's a regular conversation that we have. Even on our advice line, when we're talking about parenting, we explain, I guess, those different concepts, how they're two very different things, but both involved within parenting. Clients will still no doubt have concerns about how the court work out who the children will be living with and who they will be spending time with. What goes into that decision for the courts? So the Family Law Act, so Section 60, capital C, capital C, actually spells out what the court is required to look at. Uh, It's not what the parents want that the court's going to be concerned with. The court's only concern is what is in a child's best interests. So it basically specifies a number of things. So they're broken down into primary considerations and additional considerations. So the primary considerations are the most important. The starting point is that it's a benefit to a child to have a meaningful relationship with both parents. However, that's then balanced against the need to protect a child from harm. And that includes all kinds of harm, not just physical harm, but emotional harm as well. So if the risk of harm is seen to be unacceptable, that then outweighs that starting point that it's a benefit to a child to have a meaningful relationship with both parents. So it might be that um, where there's that unacceptable risk of harm, that other party, their time with the child may be restricted. It might just be a couple of hours. It could just be daytime contact or it could be that um, it's supervised contact or other sort of protective factors. If you've been through this, then those definitions from Hannah, you probably will have had them applied to your case. If you haven't, then chances are there was a bit of learning there. You might have heard bits and pieces from people you know who've been through it. One of the things that the lawyers pointed out to me many times as I interviewed them is that no matter what you've heard from friends or even here on this podcast, everyone's situation is different. Everyone's experience is different. And for someone we've got to know as Natalie, here's a bit more of hers. One of the things I went for I did want as an outcome for family court was to have a sole parental responsibility. I wasn't going for absolute 100% custody, but I wanted to be able to make decisions for my children without having to engage with my ex-husband. And so, so I didn't get sole parental responsibility. And, and the fallout for me has been that when you have shared parental responsibility, you have to get agreement from the other party as to any medical treatment, what schools they go to, um, what doctors they might see. And so for two years, I was trying to get agreement. It's really, really difficult in those situations. Something else she mentioned before was you needing to maintain communication with your ex-partner in order to make decisions for your children. How did you manage that? Um, well, thankfully, the the family law court sort of recognised that issue and, and I'd, I'd raised it and said, look, we, you know, we need to be able to communicate in a way, in a way that, you know, takes into account 
the history and the concerns. Um, so we had um, everything in in writing or via text. So that was kind of in in the orders. It does make it difficult, and it has presented challenges um, in you know when you are hand over, handing over the children outside of you know school and and that sort of thing. So it can be quite you know tricky and and something to be mindful of and and cautious of because you've sort of always got this order hanging over and you think can I just say there's a birthday party coming up or whatever you know because you're supposed to be doing it in 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 writing um so it 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 does become difficult but I'm far more comfortable with that given the the history and sorry it can work well you know, in situations where maybe the, the problems have resolved more than mine have, it, it could work really quite well. And, you know, just keeping it to, you know, simple texts or emails about the children can be quite an effective way of, you know, dealing with um, co-parenting. It's complicated. And just picking up on the communication bit, it needs to happen before, during and after legal proceedings. And as someone I call Michelle has realised, it's not always just going to be between two people. That has only just begun for me because I, I was parenting with the grandparents. But the grandparents stopped communicating and so it's a really hard one. I, I, I wish I had of... It's really hard because I, I wish I had have said and been more honest with myself and said, well, the grandparents are spending more time, so they are doing most of the parenting. I would like to communicate with them. But there was a part of me that went, no, they're not parents, they're not raising, I will do that with my ex-partner. But I'm not really... So my downfall was there not admitting, you know, who I should who I should be communicating with. I leave it up to them, and that's that doesn't quite work. It doesn't quite work. I guess when we think about parenting matters, we tend to think about the parents being involved, which is fair enough. But I wanted to learn a little more about who else can be included in parenting orders. So I asked Durka, who is another of the lawyers at the Women's Legal Service. Essentially, in making an application for parenting orders, it isn't confined to parents, although it usually is. Um, it, it's open to any extended family member, including a grandparent or other relatives. So, yes, we do see a lot of the time um, grandparents play that role in parenting proceedings, whether they be the primary carer or whether they offer some sort of assistance for one parent that isn't able to have that full parenting capacity by, for example, super supervising visits um, that that parent spends with the child because, for example, that that um, parent may be suffering from, you know, um, I guess, uh, issues around drug and alcohol use, mental health issues. Um, and if it's an opportunity for that parent to still have somewhat of a relationship with, um, with their child, then often a grandparent w- will intervene in order to facilitate that and, and do that through supervised time. Can it also be something that your clients worry about, uh, parents-in-law? 
getting involved or even their own parents getting involved? And definitely it's um, it, it's uh, usually when it plays out in a proceeding, it's not often a nice thing. Um, you know, there is unfortunately at times a sense of betrayal, particularly when it's the parent's parent that has made that application. Um, but I guess what it comes down to is what's in the best interest of that child and if it's a situation where that child is best placed with that grandparent. Yes, it, it often definitely makes family dynamics more hostile, but I guess all of these play out to ensure the child has a somewhat stable arrangement, and which, is, which isn't an easy thing to do, obviously, with parent-child dynamics, but um, yeah. I don't know about you, but every time I hear something explained, I find I keep wanting to say, oh, it's complicated, but you know that. And to continue with the complications and the discomfort, let's talk more specifically about cases where there is family violence. Now, you've met Jack Dalby in previous episodes. He is a trauma counsellor, and here he talks about some of the common stories he hears from the women he works with about parenting matters and the legal process. I would say women are much less likely, from my experience, to not go through legal processes because they'd rather maintain some level of amicable relationship with their ex for the sake of the kids because almost all women want their children to have some to have some contact with their fathers because they think that's they believe that's what the children want and often you know that is what the children want um, so it's more that certainly a lot of women are really anxious about going through legal processes because they do worry that um, that will be the outcome and, you know, perhaps they will themselves lose contact with their children. Um, but by that stage, they've generally been forced into it. The idea of women going into court proceedings and, one, not only having to see um, but in a way argue against and listen to uh, somebody who has perpetrated family violence against them, but also the idea that that person might walk out of the court with their children. Um, what kind of a distress and emotion does this do for women? Um, when women separate and there are children and the women believe the children are not safe with the man and that's pretty much universally true with the women I work with, not because the men are always formally abusive in a, in a sexual or physical way, but they tend not to have good parenting skills because they haven't trained themselves or thought they were accountable to, to be so, and they also tend to be the kind of people who are going to put their own needs first because that's what's got them in the situation that they're in. So when you know that's the case... Every so, so my experience of women post-separation, every time the children go and visit dad, they're really anxious, they're really distressed. This can go on for years. They never know when there'll be some kind of a blow-up. Um, so just recently I've been working with a client and her child was ringing her from the bedroom in his dad's home every night in tears because he was so anxious and, and sad there, but he had to go because those are the rules. And, of course, that's just completely devastating for her. And when she tried to raise it with the, with, with the ex, he was saying, well, no. He's, um, he said, well, the child has no reason to feel that way, therefore he shouldn't feel that way, so it's not my problem. Now, I reckon this is one of those parts about the application of the law that when it's told like this, does feel uncomfortable... These are the stories that Jack hears. For now, let's just change path slightly. 
Something that often comes up in parenting matters are relocation and recovery orders. So I asked lawyer Una about the 101. Well, the 101, I guess, is the primary consideration is the child's best interests. So in that sense, um, the parent's wants and needs come somewhat secondary. Um, but obviously, um, a, you know, the parent's happiness and access to support and work and etc., safety, um, all contribute to a child's well-being. There is no hard and fast rule that you will not be allowed to relocate because it really depends on each individual situation um, and you should certainly get some legal advice around that. But we certainly advise people not to relocate, if possible, without first getting an order permitting you to do so because um, if you relocate with children um, and it does impact on that relationship that they can have with their father, the father can, or the mother, file an application for recovery and you know obviously I don't need to <laughs> explain that that's that can be very distressing and disruptive and um, yeah. And that even happens if there is significant evidence that there's been a family violence situation? So where there's family violence um, and that you know I guess yes there are lots of legitimate reasons why someone may want to flee for example, to escape family violence. Again, if there's a safe place you can go that is not going to be considered relocating with less of a risk of a recovery order being sought. But, yeah, in some cases the only safety that can be accessed is interstate or overseas. In that case, it doesn't mean the other party can't file an application for a recovery order, but certainly if they do, you'll be um, responding with those concerns of safety, you know, and and one would hope, and the court clearly will want to take a child's safety into consideration. Once you're in the court process, obviously all the um, issues facing around evidence and, and so forth um, arise. So it's it's not a simple and straightforward situation, um, but where you can demonstrate to the court um, that, you know, that there was no other reasonable um, steps that could be taken to secure yours and your children's safety, you know, on that basis, you'd be certainly arguing that you're not ordered to return with the children. Yeah. I mean, the threat to take children is one that we've heard fairly regularly. Um, and I mean, to an extent, there's obviously a risk that, uh, you know, the children will spend some time away from each parent to spend time with the other. But the, the court will very, very rarely support a client retaining the children and not letting the other parent spend time or have a meaningful relationship with the children. There has to be some pretty serious sort of risk factors in play for that to, to, for that to be the case. Una and I talked for some time about the complexity of parenting matters and, of course, amongst that came the money stuff. Yeah, child support can be a real sticking point. So generally where couples separate 
they'll contact the child support agency who will calculate the amount of child support that should be paid um, by or to one parent or the other, depending uh, that calculation is done by the child support agency, depending on sort of the the time that the children spend with each parent um, and their relative incomes, um, which sounds great in theory. (laughs) But we do, unfortunately, particularly where things have become quite acrimonious um, or there is a tendency by one of the parents not to prioritise the children um, and the children's needs, to go to great lengths to reduce the assessment that's made. So that can be things like under-reporting their income, in some cases deliberately ceasing work, you know, obviously resulting in less of income for themselves, but... um, with the view to reducing the amount of child support that they need to pay. Um, and a difficult one too is where people are actually receiving a lot more than they are declaring through earning cash, for example. So, But it is, like with any legal issue, quite problematic when it comes to proving these things. Unfortunately, just are those matters where they'll get away with it. I'm just going to butt in here again because we talked so much about the challenges that parents go through when they're in legal proceedings. And just on the proof thing, I hadn't thought properly about the process of proving that you are a good parent, even if it's not in dispute. I think something to remember can be very tempting to fill your affidavit with all sorts of accusations against the other party and how they've failed in various um, ways as a parent and their, the risk they pose to the children and et cetera, et cetera. And often people can forget that what's equally important, if not more important, is to outline in your affidavit all the, the good things things that you can offer to your child, the benefits um, that they have in your care. So how do you do that? How do you outline it? It, it, in some cases, can be very mundane, just the routine of the day. Um, I get up, I make them breakfast. Um, It's important to outline sort of emotional support that's provided. All the little day-to-day details and things that parents do um, that do seem fairly, well, I guess, assumed. You You don't give them a lot of thought. Wow, just think about that. Whether you're a parent or not, trying to write down the detail of what makes someone a good parent for a judge to read? Yeah. Now, there is another issue that the lawyers at the Women's Legal Service see often, and I suspect some people might have all sorts of feelings about this one because, again, it's uncomfortable. I'll let lawyer Hannah explain. One of the common things that we see with women that come to us for assistance is um, how mental health is looked at, particularly in parenting matters. Um, It's something that I guess can be used against people and a lot of other parties will just use it in the sense that, right, this person has a mental illness, I'm just going to, I guess, throw as much mud as I can and see what sticks. Is there a particular case that comes to mind for you? So we had a woman come and see us 
she, well, she's the mother of, I think, a five-year-old. Um, he had been removed from her care by the other party when he was just a baby. Um, she had had, you know, really intermittent contact because the other party had used her mental health as justification for restricting or preventing her from having any contact with the child. Um, so her mental health issues were, I guess, situational. A lot of it could be seen to have been caused or contributed to by what she had experienced in that relationship. So with family violence being committed against her, causing you know depression, anxiety, PTSD, as well as the removal of the child from her care in the first place. Was that removal a formal thing? Was that done by the courts? No, it wasn't. So the other party had just left one day with the baby and said that he would not be returning the child because he had concerns about her mental health. Um, Those concerns ultimately, through mediation, they were shown to be situational and not pose a risk of harm to the child through expert reports that were obtained from psychologists, um, despite those expert reports and medical opinion saying that um, her mental illnesses didn't pose a risk of harm to the child. Um, nevertheless, the other party kept insisting that she had those mental health issues and that he would not be returning the child to her. I'm just thinking about... Um... <clears throat> When you are repeatedly told that you have a a mental health issue and it is apparently so bad that I'm not going to let you see the kids, what do your clients or this particular client tell you about what that does to perpetuate, I guess, the mental health problems or question themselves? Am I okay to parent my children at the moment? So it can be really hard and I guess it depends on the person and, and their fortitude and how they view themselves. Obviously, you know, for some people, if they're repeatedly told, you know, you're not well, you can't be around a child, some people may begin to believe that. This client, however, very strong, she had that medical evidence, she knew it was nonsense. So she managed to keep strong throughout all of that. And I I don't know how she did it, quite frankly, until you know, she was able to come to us and we were able to assist her to get um, an application into court so that the other party couldn't keep, you know, just doing what he wanted to do. What's the myth here that we need to break down perhaps for other people who might be listening? I guess that there shouldn't be that stigma around mental illness. Yes, you may have a mental illness, but it's not the fact that you have a mental illness that is what's going to be of concern to the court. It's how that mental illness affects your capacity to parent and what risk of harm it might pose to the children ultimately. How common is this Is this issue? How often do you see it? We see it quite a bit and especially in relationships where women have experienced family violence. A lot of the time, you know, that their mental illness is contributed to by what they've experienced in that relationship and then it's used against them. It's sort of, I guess, an extension of that family violence continuing once they've come out of the relationship. So it's a, it's a continued method of control. Yeah, it's definitely. Definitely. 
Can you remember back in episode one where Hannah said she'd heard a criminal lawyer say they'd rather tell someone they were going to jail for 10 years than tell them that they'd lost access to their kids? It all makes sense. I mean, parenting matters are so complex and so emotive. And just as a reminder, please don't take your legal advice from a podcast. Every case is different. There is a big list of legal services in our show notes, along with links to a number of different support services. In our next episode, we're going to learn just how financially vulnerable women can find themselves when they're going through legal proceedings. People don't think uh, they're going to be able to manage it and its finances are always pretty scary, and especially if you've never dealt with it before. Um, it's really important to to understand that it's all just about confidence and um, having the courage to, to, to know that you'll be able to manage it yourself and just having somebody telling you you can do that is, yeah, usually works well. More on our next episode of Rule of Thumb. My name is Penny Terry and this is a podcast for the Women's Legal Service Tasmania. <laughs>